Would you open up in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6? We're going to look at verse 30 to 44. There's a song that we sing from time to time here at Grace Rancho that is uh, probably the one of the stranger songs we sing. Uh, it's one of the songs that <coughs> that stands out. <coughs> excuse me. It's so utterly different than what is normally and commonly sung in in churches sung in churches today. It's it's a stranger one. It's a song. Uh, you you might know exactly what I mean when I mention it. The song is called "I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow." In fact, we sang it a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, when we were under our good old tent. And it's, so, it's a song that feels odd, a, a little bit singing, because it's a song that describes how we can ask the Lord to grow us. We can ask the Lord for help and, and maturity to, to help us become the people God wants us to be. And then the song goes on to describe God answering that prayer for growth, answering that prayer for faith by humbling us, bringing us low, making us miserable, bringing us to the end of ourselves, causing us to experience sorrow, all so that we might truly experience the grace of God that he provides for us when we're at the very rock bottom of our strength. So in other words, it's a Another reminder that when we come to Christ and ask him for things, that he doesn't always meet our needs in the ways we want or expect. You ever had that happen to you? You're asking for God to meet a need, and he does not answer your prayer in the way that you've asked him to, but he meets your need, and he meets you in a different way and in a different place, and perhaps with different timing. God meets our needs not according to our expectations, our desires that are immediate and often lacking perspective, but God meets our needs according to his perfect and profound and infinite love and wisdom. And here, in our text this morning, we're going to see Jesus working in the lives of his disciples, giving them something that they did not expect, that they did not ask for. In fact, it was something where they were taken, it was taken from them, the thing they wanted, and Jesus, in fact, gave them something greater than they, what they asked for, more profound than what they originally desired, and something that would end up helping them throughout the years of their lives and ministries. Let's look at our text. As you read it there, you can see there in your Bible, this is the text that contains the story of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. This is a familiar passage, and we got started on it last week, and we're going to complete it this morning. Let's read, I'll read it, you follow along in your Bible, starting there in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. 
send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He said a blessing and he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish, end of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So there you have it. It's one of the most remarkable miracles that we encounter in the New Testament. And as we read through it, I, I actually just want to take you through the text with four headings to kind of give us some handles to grip what's going on here in the text. First, I want to show you how Jesus gets interrupted. And then I want to show you how Jesus has compassion. And then I want to show you how Jesus invites the disciples into the miracle that he's doing and how, fourthly, he demonstrates his power. And I'll put my cards on the table now. I'll let you know that the point of what this text is doing is that God has given us this text to present to you the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in a glorious way so you would see his compassion and his generosity and his power and that you would respond to this sight of the Lord Jesus Christ with love and adoration and trust and praise and worship and devotion and rest. And so that's the the goal of this text is that you see Jesus for who he really is and that the puny Jesus we often keep in our hearts and our minds is destroyed and the real Jesus as given to us in the word is put in front and center of our hearts and minds and that we live in light of the real Christ. The real Christ. So let's start with the interruption. Uh, Last week, if you remember, we talked about rest, a topic I think we all needed to hear. And this week, we're going to see how the rest that they had intended to uh, participate in, that retreat that Jesus planned. Remember, they had been away on their Uh, preaching tours. The apostles had gone out and they had done all kinds of ministry and now they returned and Jesus hears them talking about the things they had done and he assesses them and he says, all right guys, it's time for us to go on a retreat. We need to get away. We need to rest a while. We're going to go to a desolate place and as they're going uh, around, they jump on the boat and look at there, verse 33, now many saw them going and recognized them and ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. They're on the Sea of Galilee. They don't jump in the boat and go across the Sea of Galilee. If they had done that, there's no way that the crowds could have kept up with them. You see there, it's they're running on foot. So what had happened is this boat that they had been using, they, this boat keeps appearing in the narrative of Mark. Uh, You could see the definite article, the, it's the same boat they've been using. They jump in their boat, and what they do is they get off. We don't know how far off the shore, but it's not so far that the people can't see them, right? 
So they're going away to their desolate place. They're going kind of along the coastline of Galilee. They head up north. And what's happening is, is as they're going along the coastline, the villages of Galilee, and there were several villages in this region where they're looking out and they're seeing them, and they're hearing the hype of the crowd, and they're all coming out and they're saying, what's going on? And eventually, these masses of crowds are following along on the shoreline, watching the disciples and Jesus in the boat. It's, it's like the boat is a magnet and the iron you know, shards of the people are being drawn. And wherever this boat goes, the people are being drawn out of their villages, drawn out of their towns. And all of the towns of Galilee are being drawn out. It's as if people are saying, hey, there's Jesus. I saw him get on the boat with the 12. Oh, you did? Oh, let me go tell so-and-so. And the family tells the other family. And this family tells that family. Eventually, crowds are coming out as they watch him. And you can almost see Jesus kind of just watching what's happening on the boat, using our sanctified imagination here a little bit, watching what's happening as the uh, crowds start gathering there on the shoreline. The crowds would have been massive. Your your title there says it's the feeding of the 5,000. It's actually more than 5,000 because when you look there at the end of the section, at verse 44, it says those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. The Greek word is not anthropoi. That Greek word could have included men and women as a more general term. This word is referring to males, andros. It's uh, referring to the men who were there. And we get that idea confirmed in Matthew's account, where Matthew actually says that it was the men who were 5,000, not including the counting of women and children. So you have 5,000 men. It was probably just they counted the heads of the households there. You probably, if you want to do the math, if you have a woman for every man, that puts you at 10,000. If you got kids running around, you got maybe 15, up to 20,000 people. And people have said that this was the most dramatic miracle, the most public, the most expansive miracle that happened in the, in the New Testament, aside from, of course, the resurrection. This is phenomenal because the crowds are huge in all of northern Galilee there, on the north side of the lake. We're coming out to see these thousands of thousands of people, men and women and children, a teeming mass of humanity all kind of gathering. They're watching Jesus as he's on the boat with his disciples. They see he's there. And Jesus, you just almost wonder how he's doing as he's looking out. And he sees them running on foot, chasing him down, following him. And then you can get into the head of the disciples a little bit as they look at Jesus. And they can tell Jesus is a compassionate Savior. And they're going, there goes our retreat. The disciples are, are there. The, Jesus is there. Then the boat, it, it's describing uh, that Jesus now wants to not do what they originally planned to do. They originally planned to get away and rest a while. And they got the rest, and it really only lasted the length of that boat ride, which wouldn't have been very long. Verse 34, when they went ashore, he saw a great crowd. So they pulled the boat up to the shore, and that crowd had chased them down. A great crowd, a massive crowd, more than 10,000, probably more than 15,000, including the children as well. And it says that Jesus saw them and he had compassion on them. 
and he began to teach them. Retreat's over, boys. We're going to get to work. We, we have some people who are needy. I love doing sequential exposition. You say, what in the world are you, you talking about this? Sequential exposition, where you work through the text verse by verse, and you let the text speak. You know why? It's because the texts always balance each other out. So last week, we were talking about rest. Last week, we were talking about the need for rest, that you are finite, that you are human, and that Jesus is concerned about you taking care of your body and your soul and resting. And Jesus even initiated a plan for his disciples to get rest. And then the very section, as they're heading out to get their rest, they are interrupted because Jesus has a strong heart of compassion, and he wants to lead his disciples now into caring for these people. Isn't this true to life? How many times have you intended to rest and then needs arise? People who are hurting get, come into your life. Uh, the people who are needy. You know, how dare they be needy people in your life? Suddenly you have uh, people around you you need to care for. There are uh, consequences to loving people. <laughs> there are consequences to making commitments. And if you're going to be like Jesus and have compassion, that sometimes you're going to plan rest for your body and soul, and sometimes that rest will be interrupted. And you won't get it in the way you expected it. I, I think this is really important for us to remember that there will be some times, though we hope for the comfort and the convenience of a day off, of a restful season, that there might be days or there might be weeks or there might be seasons where extended periods of rest are impossible or highly difficult. You see, this is true of anyone who's made a commitment, anyone who's really loved another person, anyone who shows compassion. Uh, we got new mothers in the congregation. I guarantee when their little baby starts crying in the middle of the night, they don't go, I'm on a retreat, kiddo. I'm getting my, my beauty sleep. You can call another time. No, they get up. Mothers perhaps know it better than anyone what it is to care for a needy individual who cannot care for themselves and what it means to sacrifice rest, to care for those in their household. Love is costly. Mark it down. Love is a commitment. Compassion interrupts. If you are going to share the heart of Christ, there will be times that you interrupt the convenient life that you're trying to create for yourself and the comfort. Although comfort is not bad, although rest is a good thing, you ought to value there will be times that love demands you give it up and you get busy with helping someone else who needs you. All the godliest people I know are busy, starting with Jesus. I mean, read, read the Gospel of Mark with that lens on. And ask yourself the question, how busy is this man? Up early to pray, all day ministering to people. They're coming at him from every angle with every possible need. You got people who want to kill him. You got people who want to accuse him. You got others who are just following him for the light show. I mean, this guy is harassed everywhere he goes. He can hardly take a boat ride without being chased around by these crowds. And then you look at Paul. Is Paul busy? Uh, the anxiety of the churches rests on his heart every day and every night. He's planting churches. He's traveling around. He's writing letters. He's preaching. He's risking his life day in, day out. Why? Because Christ is worth it. He's a busy man. 
But let me tell you, they're busy, but they're not frazzled. They're active, but they're not frenetic. Godly people are busy with right things, and they know how to rest on the run. And this is what's going on with Jesus. I was reading recently about Martin Luther and his own busy life. 36 years of ministry, Martin Luther preached approximately 3,000 sermons. That's about 85 a year, about double what I preached in 2020. He had six children, by the way. And if you think that he neglected his family, the opposite's quite true. He was a model husband for those in the Reformation, a model father. He led his family in household devotions. He led his children to understand the gospel, taught them regularly, wrote catechisms for his own children. And besides that, one biographer says, all flocked to him, besieging his door hourly. Troop citizens, doctors, princes, diplomatic enigmas were to be solved. Naughty theological points were to be settled. The ethics of social life were to be laid down. And Luther was a busy man, and he rested while on the run. Sometimes love and obligation and commitment and compassion demands that we get to work. Although we do not want to deny or negate what was said last week, we also need to be understanding our finiteness and rest. And so I can't answer the questions for how that works out for you in your own personal life. It requires wisdom. Every person's different. You have a different size engine than the people around you, a different size fuel tank than the people around you. You can't be expected, and I don't expect you, to to run like Luther, to work like him, uh, because God designed him differently. And you're, you're your own person, designed with your own strengths and your own capacities and your own weaknesses and your own limits here's what i would tell you that what god has given you you pour out for his glory that what god has given you you use up and you rest and we would rather not see you burn out in a passionate display of active energy we'd rather have you plod along faithfully working hard day in day out year in year out for the lord resting as you can and working while you can, that you're using your days well, your mornings wisely, your evenings are maximized, you're not killing yourself because you're regularly resting body and soul. Jesus was interrupted. So will those who, be, uh, who are committed to following him. We will be interrupted. Commit to a life of love, and it will cost you time, although it will be worth it. So do you rest but do you hold your rest with an open hand? I want us then to look at why this interruption occurred. Why was it that they stopped the retreat? What was it that came along that allowed them to cancel and move on to something else? And here we see our second point, that Jesus has compassion. The reason why he stopped is because he had compassion on the crowd. You see that in verse 34. He went ashore, he saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them. I was thinking about how I would react if this were the case. How would you react? If you're trying to finally get away for your retreat and you're bombarded by a whole host of people who want your attention, to kind of do some uh, contrasting here, I I looked up paparazzi, and I got some article. I was reading some article about how celebrities respond to paparazzi, and it kind of chuckled as I looked through it, and there were some pictures 
One guy sticking his tongue out at the camera. Another guy's trying to hide under an umbrella. Worst of all, one of the lady celebrities being sworn by cameras had her soda out and was trying to pour her Coke on all the people with cameras because of how much they despised being followed around. I think most of us, if we're, we're exhausted and we're tired and we go out just trying to live a normal life and maybe rest a little bit, we'd be irritated by crowds bombarding us, wouldn't we? And just to contrast how we would feel and how a typical person might feel, contrast it with Jesus' heart here. Look at this. You see it? See, these crowds that are following him, he sees them, and this visceral response comes out of his heart, and it's compassion. This word compassion, used only to describe the heart of Christ. It's it's an interesting word there in the Greek. Um, You might like it. It's splognazomai. It comes from the root splognon, which literally refers to someone's guts. When Judas killed himself, it says that his bowels gushed out. Sorry to be graphic. But that is the word that is used to describe the bowels, splagna. It is a, a word, the word compassion is rooted in the idea of your guts being wrenched, your stomach turning. You've felt such a deep emotion that you feel it in your bones that Jesus, when he comes to the shoreline and he sees, sees these people scrambling about, trying to get there, not quite sure what in the world they're doing, why it is they're following, who exactly Jesus is. They're caught up in the excitement of it all, and they follow him to the shoreline, and Jesus is not irritated. Jesus is not upset with them. You're interrupting my rest. No. His stomach feels it. Compassion. Because, it says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're so needy. They're so confused. They're so perplexed. They don't, don't have any direction. They don't know why, what they're living for. These people don't have the big questions answered in their lives. They don't know why they exist. They don't know what is their purpose in their life. They're just kind of going through the motions. And here's an excited, shiny object, Jesus. They want to go see what he's all about, and they're chasing him around. And Jesus goes, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And I bet all the disciples, they probably didn't feel the same way Jesus did. They're going, come on, couldn't we just keep going? We were going to go rest. And Jesus is just, his guts are turning on the inside as he looks at them and goes, they're so needy. They're so helpless. Helpless and harassed as Matthew describes them. You need to consider this, church. What you see in the heart of Christ is the direct representation of the heart of the Father. That Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. The heart of the Father is displayed to us, revealed to us in the person of Jesus. And so, who is God? We don't make God up. We we are revealed God. God is revealed to us through His Son. What is God like? What is the God who made all the universe like? He is compassionate. He is a God of mercy. He is by nature mercy. It is not a mood that he has. 
It is part of his divine being to be merciful. And that means he is predisposed to look at those who are harassed and are helpless and are lost and confused. And he looks at them and he is moved with compassion toward them. A.W. Tozer says, Mercy is an attribute of God, an infinite and inexhaustible energy within the divine nature with the, which disposes God to be actively compassionate. This is, by the way, the reason why all through the Scriptures God is calling people to return to Him. You read through the Old Testament, He's calling people who have been lost in sin, return to Me, come to Me, turn from your wicked ways. Turn from your evil deeds. Return to the Lord. He will abundantly pardon. He will forgive your sins. He will adopt you in. This is why Scripture does this, because this is who our God is. He didn't go through a mood one day, and then tomorrow you might catch him on a bad day, and he's grumbling and he's no longer compassionate. This is part of the essence of the nature of God. We see revealed in the heart of Christ that when he sees People who are like sheep without a shepherd, his heart is breaking with compassion for them, and he invites them to himself. And let me tell you this, that it is the heart of compassion, the heart of Christ that overflows with mercy that moves him to Jerusalem, that moves him to that garden of Gethsemane, that moves him to that cross. He will die on that cross in the place of sinners. Why? Because he is merciful, because he is compassionate, because he would rather himself suffer than his own people suffer. He will take upon himself the sins of all his people, and he will bear the wrath of God that they deserve, and he will rise, and he will offer forgiveness of sins to everyone who repents. Why? Because he is merciful, because he is compassionate, because this is the heart of Christ, in Matthew, this account, it says that when the crowds came to him, it says that he began welcoming them. He began welcoming them. And isn't that the heart of the Savior, to welcome the least, the lowly, the humble to himself because he is compassionate? And so let me invite you, you, if you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you are here. And I want you to know that you are welcome to come to Jesus Christ in humble faith. That you are welcome to come to him because he's compassionate. And because he, by his death, burial, and resurrection, has swung wide the gates of paradise and forgiveness, and you can walk in knowing that in Christ your sins are forgiven. The death of Christ can pay for them all. The righteousness of Christ can be yours. And the Father adopts you into his household. Why? He's compassionate. He's kind. He's merciful. This is who he is. He sees his people with sheep with a, uh, as sheep without a shepherd, and he invites them in. He welcomes them. Another thing that you see that he begins to teach them. Did you see that? Look back at the text. Look at that uh, there at the end of verse 34. He has compassion on them, so what does he do? He begins to teach them. In Luke, it's mentioned also that he heals. Matthew already mentioned he welcomes here, the emphasis is that Jesus begins to teach these lost sheep. He begins to explain to them. In other words, he recognizes that their need is deeper than just having their mouths fed. He will feed them. 
They will be hungry and he will feed their bodies. But first, he wants to feed their souls by giving them the truth. He wants to make sure they know how to live eternally. He wants to make sure they know how they can be reconciled to God. And so I would imagine he would probably teach something similar to what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, that he would be explaining to them that it's not the the righteous, upright people who think they got it all together that are getting into the kingdom of God. It's the poor in spirit. It's not those who uh, live as if all is well. It's those who mourn over their sin. It's not those who are proud and lifted up, haughty people. It is the meek who inherit the earth. And he would have flipped upside down their expectations of who God accepts. And this message is true, that Jesus comes to feed your soul. And every time you gather and we open up the Word of God and we read it together and we think about what he's done and we come to the table, and we are being ministered to by Jesus himself. You realize that? That Jesus himself is feeding us as we gather, just as he did all these years ago. He teaches us. He instructs us because he knows that if we have our stomachs full and our hearts empty, we will be lost. So do you know the way to be reconciled to God? Do you know what it means to come to him by faith, to repent, to embrace his death, burial, and resurrection? This is what Jesus is interested in. He wants to make sure they know this. You might be like a sheep without a shepherd. Even if you're a Christian here, you might at times feel confused and perplexed like a little sheep with no shepherd, wandering around, helpless, vulnerable, lost. And isn't it amazing to know that your Savior feels compassion for you? He's not slapping you on the side going, come on, man, get it together. (laughs) Figure it out. He's compassionate. He feels it. The Lord, in his human nature, feels that compassion deep down in his gut. And so he's teaching them. And he's teaching them for a while, must be, because look at verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. So it's taken a while. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. I don't think the disciples are necessarily upset with Jesus. I think they're just trying to help him manage his time. You know, hey, Jesus, it's getting a little late. People are going to get hungry. They're going to want to go get food. Hey, maybe we start planning this. Let's, let's make sure they can go back. They can get their food. And Jesus has a different plan. Here's our third section. Here's our third heading. Jesus is going to invite them into the miracle. Look at this. Verse 37. He answered them, you give them something to eat. We've read this too many times that we don't laugh at this. If you're one of the disciples, you go, what? You see there's 20,000 people here, which is why they respond the way they do. You you want me to go buy 200 denarii? A denarii is about a year's salary, a a worth of bread, and and give it to them to eat. In other words, come on, Jesus, it's so unrealistic. We can't feed all these people. That would be impossible. Uh, What do you want us to do? Start cutting the grass and make them eat it like a cow? I mean, we've got nothing here. we got a boat. Uh, you want to start grabbing fish out of the water? Or what do you want us to do? we got nothing. We don't have money to buy food for all the people. Jesus says, you, you give them something to eat. Come on, do something. They're, they're, I bet they're all looking at each other. <laughs> what are we supposed to do? He's, he's asking them to do something that's clearly outside of their capacity to do. You catch that? He's asking them to do something that they cannot do. They cannot feed the crowds. 
They, they, they don't have the capacity to feel the crowds. They don't have the resources to feed the crowds. And Jesus is just putting this command on their plate. You do this. Feed them. And they don't get it. So he goes, all right, let me help you out a little bit. Let me get you started. Um, verse 38, he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they go out and see. It's, it's funny to imagine you, know, you have 20,000 people there and you got five loaves and two fish. It's like one mom packed a lunch. It's the only one that, that, that thought ahead. All the rest of them were just, just rushing out to Jesus. They weren't even thinking about it. Someone planned ahead. So we got this little boy. Uh, it goes and they get, this, they get this little lunch, five loaves, two fish. That's what they got. The loaves, by the way, they weren't big loaves like, like you know, like a French loaf when you go to the grocery store. Uh, the loaf was a barley loaf, and that would have basically imagine a Ritz cracker. Like that's what a loaf was. Um, not a loaf to you or me, but that's what they used. And so they got five crackers, they got two fish, and that's what they're doing. And Jesus basically said, all right, um, you're going to feed them. I want you to feed them. They don't know what to do. Okay, well, here's, here's a little lunch. We got one lunch. Okay, what are we going to do now? This is not enough, okay? What are we going to do? Now Jesus takes it from here. Okay, they, they, they're, they're clearly not getting it. Jesus says, all right, well, I'll take it from here. Look at verse 39. Then he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the green grass. The word commanded is emphatic. It's a strong word. It would have had to be a strong word. You got one man commanding at least 15,000 people to sit down in groups. Jesus says, here's what we're doing. Sit down in groups. They all begin to sit down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. So they're breaking up. I'm amazed that this happened the way it did. I can hardly get my kids to sit down at the table sometimes. Um, here's Jesus commanding thousands of people. They all go, yes, sir. They sit down. They get in their groups. It might be that they were that hungry and wanted to eat. They're willing to do anything. But in any case, Jesus commands them. They sit down. And Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish. He looks up into heaven. He says a blessing. And he breaks these loaves, so they're getting little pieces of crackers, and he gives them to the disciples, and they are then going to be handing it out to the people. Isn't this amazing? Jesus could have done it himself. Of course he could. He could have just made it magically appear in front of them. He could have just, you know, spoken the word, and they all of a sudden feel no longer hungry. They're suddenly satisfied. It's not what he does. He invites the disciples into it. He tells them to do the impossible, and then he gives them the power to do it. He tells them to do something so utterly outside of their capacity, and then he gives them the resources to do it. Consider that. This is, this is always how God is operating with his people. Read through the Bible. Read through the Old Testament. Read through the, the, the people like Moses and like Jeremiah and like Gideon who come to God after, after God calls them to something. He says, hey, this is what I want you to do, Moses. This is what I want you to do, Jeremiah. This is what I want you to do, Gideon. What do they do? They say, who am I? I don't have the resources to do that. I, I'm too young. I, I, I stutter. I, I don't have the capacity. I'm weak. He, he, he goes, it's not about you. It's not about the resources you have. Because God in his divine strength and his divine resources is going to give you what you need. You obey. And he has been doing that with the church. There are things, church, that you have been called to do. You have been called to love the unlovable. You have been called to disciple the people around you. You've been called to share the gospel with the lost. You've been called to live a life according to the Holy Spirit's power in you. 
And listen, you don't have the capacity to do this stuff. Jesus has called us to live beyond our natural means. The only way you can live the Christian life is if you depend on the supernatural power of God. That's the only way. John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do anything according to God's plan and purpose in your life unless you depend upon the Holy Spirit to empower you. He arranges the Christian life so that we contribute nothing, so that He does everything, so that He gets all the glory. The disciples are not going to sit back and boast about how much they you know, cooked up these crackers and fish and made such a great meal and fed the masses. They're going to look back at this and go, we, did not, we didn't even know what he was talking about. We didn't know how he was going to do this. And suddenly these crackers you know, kept multiplying and we kept handing them out. And what they're experiencing in this moment is going to be with them as long as they live. They're never going to forget this moment when God worked through them, when the, when the Lord used their hands to multiply bread and fish to feed thousands. And so we get to our fourth heading that Jesus demonstrates his power. And there it is. The actual miracle takes place. He prays, and they, they begin handing it out in verse 41. The disciples are handing it to the people. Jesus is, we don't know exactly how it's working. He might be pulling it out of a bucket. He might be just pulling it out of the, the lunch bag, and it just keeps going and going, and the disciples are taking it. You can almost envision some sort of assembly line or something, and they're getting it to all these thousands of people, and they're eating, and the people are eating, and they eat their first batch of crackers, and they want more, and more comes, and they get their little bit of fish, and, and it just keeps coming, and they're all eating and eating and eating, and the Lord right there, I want you to see this, Jesus is acting as the creator. You, you see that, right? He's acting as the creator because he's bringing into existence things that didn't exist before. He's bringing bread to feed these crowds. He's bringing fish, fish, as I've heard it said, that have never swam, and bread uh, from grain that never grew. He is creating it there on the spot, and he's feeding. Why? Because he is creator. Do you know who Jesus is? He is the creator. When God said, let there be light, he spoke and there was, and Jesus is the divine word that bring, brought everything into existence. He's creator. And here he is displaying his power, his omnipotent power to create in such a way that he satisfies the hungry stomachs of this massive crowd. There's a, there's a school of biblical scholarship that essentially denies the existence of the supernatural. In the 1800s, it was very popular. There's still schools of thought that take this route that you read through the Gospels and basically everything that has any hint of miracle in it, you've got to ignore as being made up myth. And so there's some outlandish, even silly explanations for what happened here. One of them <laughs> was that Jesus 
on a previous day had snuck out to some cave and he'd stuffed it all with crackers and fish. And he knew that he was going to lead this crowd to this place. And he had these big flowing robes. And when the massive crowds all gathered around him, he and his disciples kind of almost tricked them and they pulled the food out of the cave and because of his flowy robe, it made it look like it was appearing out of thin air. And they fed the crowds. There's another explanation that was probably more common, that basically Jesus, when he taught them, it wasn't that he was, uh, or when he fed them, it wasn't that he was creating from nothing these created fish and loaves, but that actually about half the crowd had brought food and half didn't, and Jesus taught them and so inspired them that they all shared together And they all ate and were satisfied. And the lesson is, well, if we truly listen to Jesus, we're all going to be generous people. That's not in the text. This is a miracle in history. And it is an extravagant miracle uh, right there in front of thousands of people. And if you're a little bit of the, the skeptic that's not sure what happened, this is recorded in every gospel. This is recorded by all the biographers of Christ as one of the most amazing events, the most incredible acts of power that happened in Jesus' lifetime. There are two miracles mentioned in all four Gospels. One is the resurrection. The other is this. That's how extravagant this was, that thousands of people are being fed to the max Hunger is dispelled. They are satisfied, and there's all kinds of leftovers. Isn't that amazing power? This is what Jesus did in history. This is a true event. So we ask ourselves, why is this recorded for us today? Clearly, God wants us to see something about his son, Jesus Christ. God wants you to see something about his son, Jesus Christ. God wants you to worship Jesus Christ. Do you know that? (laughs) That's why you're here. I know you know that. God wants you to see him and rest in him because you know him to be rich and omnipotent and generous and compassionate. I want you to think about this now. Let's, Let's circle back to the very beginning. That God sometimes meets our needs in unexpected ways. Twelve exhausted disciples hoping for a little retreat. The retreat gets cut short, and here they are on the shore feeding these people with this miraculous power of Christ. They didn't get the rest they wanted, but what did they get? They got an incredible, life-transforming display of power that would stick with them through the end of their lives. That's what they got. Something that would be more profound, more life-changing than a couple days rest would have done for them. In fact, I want you to envision, imagine the disciples years and years later. Imagine them uh, after Jesus ascended into heaven. You remember all the disciples minus Judas were martyred, except of John, he got exiled. They all faced incredible persecution. Imagine them facing the pressures of encroaching persecution. 
Imagine them facing the difficulties of planting new churches and spreading the gospels in the new regions. Imagine that. Imagine that's happening. Do you think they're going to look back on their boat ride and go, man, I really wish we would have had those two days of rest back then, all those 30 years ago? Those two days of rest would have been awesome. That would have given me what I need now to make it through. No. What are they doing? They're going to go, remember when we had no idea what to do? And there's all kinds of need right in front of us. And Jesus showed this compassion. And then, remember, he demonstrated his omnipotence by just creating food. And then he allowed us to be participating in this. And we were able to to feed all these hungry people. Remember that? And, And the food just kept coming. Remember how compassionate he was? Remember how generous he was? And that he used his omnipotence to feed the thousands. Remember that? And they would have taken a deep breath and go, that's our Savior today. And we can face anything because we know that our Savior is omnipotent. Our Savior is compassionate. Our Savior is radically generous. I can trust Him. And then you gear up for another hard day of ministry. In other words, what I think Jesus gave the disciples here is something far more profound than what they would have gotten with a couple days rest. They got a vision of Jesus Christ. They got a picture of His majesty and His glory. A fantastic, phenomenal display of power is now theirs. And church, this is on display. This is recorded for us in sacred scripture that you might have a picture of Christ, a picture that you need. You need to know that Jesus is boundless with His compassion toward you, Christian. You need to know that He is omnipotent in His power and that nothing can hold him back from accomplishing his will. You need to know that he is radically generous, that he loves to spill out in helpfulness to his children as an attentive father gives and gives and gives to his own. You need to know that, and you need to rest in that. And those truths, when you internalize them and you feel them in your bones, those truths will give you rest when you need it. Rest when you're exhausted. Rest when you're weary. It's a rest for the soul. A rest for your heart to calm you when you worry and when you're anxious to know that your Savior is omnipotent and compassionate and generous and you can go to Him. And so the application is this. Listen, worship Jesus Christ. Cry out to Jesus Christ. Trust Jesus Christ. Find Him precious. Treasure Him. Glorify Him. Devote your entire life to Him. And then, church, rest. Rest in Him, in His care for you. Because when He sees you and when He saw you in your greatest need, He saw you as a sheep without a shepherd. And guess what he did? He became your shepherd. You have a shepherd, church. Go to him. Trust him. Rest in him. Follow him. Worship him. He is is worthy. Is he not? Let's pray.
We worship you, Jesus. We praise you. We thank you. We praise you that you, all those years ago, accomplished this mighty miracle so as you, so you would show your disciples who you are and that you would show us who you are. And in so doing, you would help us to trust you and to rest in you. Thank you for that word. We love you. In Jesus' name.